I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome back to Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is episode 202. Today I've picked a famous date for you, and I'll tell you a little bit about that event. Then I'm going to share three other fun stories that were being printed in newspapers on the exact same day. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode, because one of the stories has a twist ending that will shock you. Today's famous date isn't one that holds particular significance to the United States, like most of my episodes. However, the news of this event still made it into newspapers around the country. And, in fact, not just the country, but the world. The famous date is August 22nd, 1911. And I'm taking an article from the Boston Evening Transcript out of Massachusetts. The headline says, Great Painting Stolen. Friends, this is the story of that one time when the famous Mona Lisa painting was stolen from the Louvre in Paris. It's one of the most famous paintings of all time. That's not a secret. But back in 1911, was the painting as well known as it is now? Well, that's hard to say. According to the articles printed in 1911, the Renaissance masterpiece painted by Leonardo da Vinci was extremely famous and second only in its fame to the Sistine Madonna painted by Michelangelo. Like I've already said, newspapers all over the globe immediately picked up the story as soon as the painting was stolen. But according to an NPR article written a hundred years later, the painting was hardly known until it was stolen, and that's what made it famous. I'm not sure which to believe. Anyway, whether it was famous at that point or not isn't really important. How does one go about stealing any painting from the Louvre? Well, security measures back more than 100 years ago weren't quite what they are now. And even though the Mona Lisa was stored in a heavy glass case, it did nothing to stop three men who decided to hide out in a closet in the Louvre until after it closed for the day. They waited until just the right moment to emerge from their hiding place, and then they hurried to the place where the famous painting was hung. At the time, with the frames and the glass casing, the painting weighed around 200 pounds, so it was really heavy. The three men then began to strip away the extra stuff so the painting itself would be easier to carry. Now, I have never been to the Louvre. Someday I would love to go. But as of October 2023, when this episode's being released, I haven't made it there yet. Over the years, I've heard a lot of people who visited the museum say that the painting is underwhelming and that it's much smaller than they expected. But apparently I've been living under a rock because until I started doing research for this episode, I had no idea that the painting was painted on wood paneling rather than on a canvas. Because of that, the men couldn't just roll up the canvas and tuck it away while they made their escape which, honestly, was probably a good thing. Instead, after the frame and the glass were stripped away, they threw a blanket over the painting and slipped out of the museum. Nobody on the street saw them, or if they did, nobody suspected them. Then they headed straight for a train station, boarded a train, 
and got themselves out of Paris. So, what was the reaction of the Louvre directors when they discovered the theft? Well, that's an interesting question because nobody actually noticed that the painting was missing for a whole day. The Louvre allowed painters to come in and paint copies of the famous works on the wall. And one of those painters spent his time in the same gallery as the Mona Lisa. And after he'd been in there painting for a while, he started to complain that he just couldn't work without the woman hanging there, and he complained to the staff about it. At the time, each of the paintings in the museum were being taken off display temporarily so that they could then be photographed before being hung back up again. Both the painter and the Louvre employee assumed that that's why the Mona Lisa wasn't hanging in her spot. The staff member checked into it, and lo and behold, the Mona Lisa was not in the process of being photographed. When it couldn't be found, a search began. The directors looked from the cellars to the attic, and one thing quickly became clear. The Mona Lisa was no longer in the museum. The police were summoned, and they began to question everyone who had been in and had access to the building. That included all of those who went there to paint, and even the curators. Nobody had any insight as to where it could have gone. There was only one conclusion. The painting had been stolen. The Louvre was quickly shut down, and in an effort to keep public outcry at bay, they announced that the reason they closed was because they had a broken water pipe. That lie didn't work for long. Upon further searching the museum, authorities were able to find the glass and the frame of the painting that the thieves had hidden under a staircase. That brought a little bit of relief because the frame itself dated back to the Italian Renaissance time. And there was a little bit of good news that came with that find. The thief had left behind fingerprints on the glass. The authorities collected fingerprints from hundreds of people who worked in the museum, or who would, people who would have had access to the painting, and compared them to the ones found on the glass. But they couldn't find a match. Anyway, there were a few theories about who could have taken it. First, some people believed that the painting had been stolen by the Germans. The beginning of World War I was still a few years off, but tensions were already rising between the countries, and it was a definite possibility. Second, some believed that the painting was stolen by wealthy Americans in an attempt to obtain French artwork. One theory was that the extremely wealthy J.P. Morgan, an art lover, had commissioned someone to steal the painting for him so he could add it to his own personal collection. Still, others thought that the painting had been stolen in behalf of Pablo Picasso. Well, the museum stayed closed for about a week, and as you can probably imagine, when it reopened, it was mobbed by people wanting to come and see the place where the Mona Lisa should have been hanging. One source said that the empty spot was like a mark of shame for Paris. So, what did the men who took the painting do with it? First of all, the men were all Italian. The one who orchestrated everything was Vincenzo Perugia and his two friends, who also happened to be brothers, Vincenzo and Michel Lancelotti. Perugia knew just how to get at the painting because guess what? He was a handyman, and he was the one who had installed the glass case around the painting originally. Anyway, the men figured they would try to sell the painting, but they weren't expecting so much attention to surround it. 
They weren't expecting the worldwide attention and the massive reward offered. So they decided to just sit on it for a while. Let some time pass, if you will. This is where sources vary a little bit, and the details are hazy. But one source I read said that the men took the painting out of the city, and then Perugia took the painting to his home and hid it beneath the floorboards there. Another source said that Perugia did indeed take it to his home, but that he lived just a few blocks from the museum, and he hid the painting in a suitcase with a hidden compartment. No matter where it was hidden, the answer to the painting's whereabouts remained a mystery for more than two years. Then, finally, in December of 1913, Perugia decided it was time to make a little money and return the Mona Lisa to Italy like he thought it should be. He answered an ad in an Italian newspaper from a man that wanted to buy works of art. He told the man he had the Mona Lisa, and for the right price, the painting could be his. Luckily, the man was a bit more honest than Perugia, and he notified authorities. They were able to retrieve the painting, confirm its authenticity, and then Perugia went to prison for the next 18 months. As you can imagine, security at the Louvre was upgraded, and now, more than 100 years later, the Mona Lisa is still visited by more than a million people every year. But enough about theft. It's time to open some more newspapers and see what else was being reported the day Mona Lisa's smile disappeared. My first additional history story of the day comes from the Alexandria Gazette out of Alexandria, Virginia, printed on August 22, 1911. This headline says, Beatty Jury Secured. Now, as you can probably guess, this is a murder story. At that time in history, this story was such a big deal that it was being referred to as the trial of the century. People couldn't wait for the sensational trial to get underway probably so they could gossip about it with all of their friends. It was a popular topic. So popular that a book was written about this murder and the trial that resulted from the murder. The book is titled A Full and Complete History of the Great Beatty Case. One of the subtitles says, Detailed History of the Lives of Henry Clay Beatty Jr. and Beulah Binford, the woman in the case, with many facts not before published. I mean, with a promise like that, it's bound to be a popular book, right? Well, there's one thing that is kind of left out. You see, Henry Clay Beatty was accused of murdering his wife. But his wife wasn't Beulah Binford. That was his supposed mistress. The dead woman was Louise Beatty. And even though she was the victim of murder, it was almost like she was forgotten in the case. But let me back up and tell you this story from the beginning. Henry Clay Beatty Jr. was born into a family that was well-off. His father was a businessman in Virginia, where they lived as a family. Well, Henry was a bit spoiled, I guess you could say, and he was a bit wild and rebellious. He really liked women, and he was known to get around with quite a few of them. In July of 1907, he met one of those women, although I'm not sure she could be called a woman. You see, the girl... Beulah Binford was just 13 years old. 
Henry was 17 or 18 at the time. It didn't take very long for the couple to become intimate. Their affair lasted for a couple of years, and as sometimes happens, Beulah found herself pregnant with Henry's child. And as I'm sure you know, this was highly frowned upon back in the early 1900s. Beulah gave birth to a baby boy and named him Henry Clay Beatty III. Henry didn't want anything to do with the child, and Beulah was young and not really in a position to take care of a newborn. So the baby was sent to live with some of her relatives. And then the baby was eventually adopted out to another family. Sadly, the baby was never in good health, and he died just a year after he was born. Meanwhile, Henry convinced Beulah to move out of the area so that the scandal could kind of go away. You see, like I kind of mentioned earlier, Henry's lifestyle came because his father had money and gave it to his son. And then Henry's father was starting to get tired of his wild and carefree lifestyle, and he was pushing for his son to settle down and get married. Henry knew that if he wanted the money to keep coming, he had to follow his father's wishes. So, just a year after the birth of the baby he never cared for, Henry Beatty married Louise Owens. Did the marriage help to settle him down? No, of course not. He went right back to his usual behavior, having affairs and even starting up a relationship with Beulah again. Poor Louise was left at home while her husband partied. It wasn't a happy marriage, but Louise became pregnant, and I'm sure she hoped that a child would settle her husband down. On May 31, 1911, Henry Clay Beatty III was born to Henry and Louise. And yes, the baby got the same name as the baby he had with Beulah. Still, Henry didn't change his ways. By this time, he was 21 years old. Beulah was 17, and I'm not sure how old Louise was. In July of 1911, Louise took her newborn son and went to visit her uncle, who lived not too far away. She was going to come back in a day or two. But while she was there, Henry showed up at the house, claiming that he'd come to take his wife for a drive. So Louise agreed, and the couple left. Then, at 11 o'clock that night, Henry returned to the uncle's house, except he was driving with only one hand. The other arm was wrapped around his wife's lifeless body. He was distraught and claimed that something horrible had just happened out on the highway. According to Henry, a tall man with a long beard had stopped them along the road and then held them up with a shotgun while he robbed them. In the process, Louise Beatty was shot and killed. Henry managed to wrestle the gun away from the man, and he thought it was in the car, but when Louise's relative looked, there wasn't any gun. The incident was quickly reported to the police, and an investigation began immediately. After all, the Beatys were a high-profile family in the area, and the police didn't want to mess around. They took bloodhounds to the scene where the robbery and murder supposedly took place, and although they did find drops of blood, the dogs couldn't pick up any trace of a human leaving in any direction. They just kept circling around where the car had been parked. At first, the cops completely believed Henry's story. 
but then the details just weren't making sense, and the idea that maybe Henry was lying to them started to creep into their heads. When they found out from one of Henry's relatives that he had recently bought a gun for Henry, at Henry's request, it made them even more suspicious. Then, someone walking in the area found the gun along a railroad track, about 25 feet from where the murder had taken place. Henry Clay Beatty Jr. was arrested, and soon his name would fill newspaper pages all over the country. Had the wild rich kid killed his wife? Or was he being held accountable for a horrible tragedy? The police questioned whether the relative who bought the gun for Henry was involved in the murder, and whether Beulah Binford had been involved, and both of them were arrested and questioned just like Henry. As soon as Henry's trial started in August, just a month after the murder, the atmosphere at the courthouse was like a circus. Someone set up a lemonade stand. Someone else set up a lunch stand. Others set up small business ventures in the area, hoping to make a quick buck from the massive crowds gathering for the trial. A jury was chosen, and the trial began. Henry maintained that he was innocent throughout the entire trial. When it was his turn to take the stand, he tried to prove his innocence, and the crowd went crazy. He said he was innocent and even claimed not to have any relationship with Beulah, and even went so far as to say that her baby hadn't been his, and that she and her mother had tried to trick him into paying for her needs because they knew he had money, and knew they could ruin his reputation if he didn't pay. Well, the trial lasted for a couple of weeks, and when the jury came back with a decision in September, they found Henry Clay Beatty Jr. to be guilty of murdering his wife. He was sentenced to be executed in November, just two months after the trial. So, from the day the murder took place on July 18th, until Henry was electrocuted in the state penitentiary, just four months had passed. And, right before he was executed, Henry finally confessed to a couple of priests that, yes, he was guilty. He had killed Louise. For my second additional history story of the day, I've got a kind of sad story for you that I saw in multiple newspapers on August 22nd. This headline comes from the Evening Star out of Washington, D.C. It says, Widow Needs Help. In this story, the widow is a woman named Minnie Dennis. I'm not sure how old she was, but I think she was fairly young, and she had six kids ranging in age from 11 down to just two years old. Minnie's husband had served in the Spanish-American War just over a decade earlier, and then they had been living together with their children down in Panama, in the Canal Zone, while her husband worked there. Then Lieutenant Louis R. Dennis suddenly came down with some sort of fever, possibly related to malaria, and he died. His wife was distraught. There she was, without any money, living in a foreign place, with six young kids to take care of. She didn't know what to do. Well, those in charge in Panama put Minnie and the children on a boat to head back to Washington, D.C. In New York City, the group got off the boat and onto a train to finish their journey. Now, before leaving the Canal Zone, 
many had been assured that members of the Spanish War veterans, amongst others, would be there to meet her and would help her with her needs and help her with the funeral arrangements. But when the Sad family arrived in Washington, D.C., they got off in Union Station, and the casket containing Lieutenant Dennis's body was unloaded and sat on the platform next to them. And then they were left on their own. Nobody was there to meet them as promised, and poor Minnie had just five cents to her name. She waited and waited and waited, hoping that the friends had just been delayed. She didn't know where to go, and even if she did, she couldn't pay for anything. Oh, and there was the problem of her husband's casket. She couldn't just walk away and leave it there. Finally, after 12 hours, when she and the kids were starving and in tears, Minnie was able to get the attention of the police, and they called a woman who ran a veteran's home, telling her that there was a widow that needed help and had a six-year-old child with her. Much to that woman's surprise, when she arrived at Union Station, it wasn't a six-year-old child, but rather six kids with nowhere to go. Luckily, the woman didn't hesitate to take them all in. She helped to clothe and feed them and gave them a place to sleep for the night. The next day, Minnie walked up and down the streets of Washington, D.C., asking everyone she met where she might find a job. She even met President Taft's secretary, who said he would help her find a job. Minnie was determined to keep her family together. She didn't have any family in Washington, but she was from Virginia and had family there. However, all of her family members had big families of their own and not enough money to share. Fortunately, when the Spanish War veterans heard what was going on, and by the way, they said that nobody in Panama had ever informed them that Minnie would be arriving, they took action and quickly raised the money for Lieutenant Dennis's funeral. He was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery with full military rights. The group also promised to help take care of Minnie, too. I hope they did. Okay, as promised at the beginning of this episode, I have a story for you that has a twist ending. I first saw a headline about this in the August 22nd, 1911 edition of the Lawton Daily News out of Lawton, Oklahoma. But if I read the headline to you, it might ruin the story, so you have to wait for that. A lot of my information from this story also comes from research done by the University of Michigan. But again, I can't go into specifics on that either because it will give the twist away. So, let me start at the beginning. This story actually started quite a bit before the Mona Lisa painting was stolen, clear back in 1908. At that time, there was a man by the name of Reverend James Smith. He did his preaching at a church in Reeds Ferry, Virginia. And I believe that Reeds Ferry was, or is, in the area of Suffolk. Anyway, Reverend Smith lived in the Lyons family home. The family consisted of Ernest, Ernest's wife, and Ernest's sister-in-law. Sometimes Reverend Smith would leave town, whether for business or for personal reasons, and while he was gone, Ernest Lyons would fill in for him at the pulpit of their local church. Ernest would 
also help Reverend Smith to maintain the church. Well, everything was just great at first. The men worked well together, and they got things done. But soon there started to be some tension between them. Reverend Smith started to be annoyed and frustrated with Ernest. Why? Because it came out that some of the members of his congregation actually preferred Ernest's sermons over the reverend's. They liked it when he was out of town, and that wasn't the only problem. Reverend Smith was starting to show interest in Ernest's sister-in-law that lived with him, even to the point of being intimate with her, and Ernest did not like that at all. In July of 1908, three years before the painting was stolen, Reverend Smith and Ernest Lyons were seen leaving the church together. They were arguing about a church conference that they were going to attend together the next day. The men had collected $45 from their congregation just so that they could attend the conference. In today's money, that would be well over $1,000. The next day, Ernest Lyons went to the church conference and waited for Reverend Smith to show up. Except he didn't show up. Ever. Lyons was a bit confused. Where had the Reverend gone? Well, after the Reverend didn't come back for many days, the people in his congregation started to worry, and they wondered what had happened to their preacher. Some started to question whether Ernest Lyons had had something to do with the disappearance, especially since he was the one who got to take over preaching to the congregation in the Reverend's absence. Had Ernest purposely done something to get rid of Reverend Smith? When the rumors started going around, Ernest tried to put a stop to them, and he even insisted that he had seen the Reverend around town at least three times since he supposedly disappeared. But I don't think anyone actually believed him. Fast forward three weeks, and someone made a grisly discovery. A body was found floating in the nearby river. Now, the body was in really bad condition, and nobody could identify the man just by looking at the body. But it was clear that the man was black, just as Reverend Smith had been. And he was wearing a suit, just like the one Reverend Smith usually wore. One of the Reverend's friends went to the authorities and told them, Hey, if this is really James Smith, he's going to be wearing a gold ring with a purple stone in it. He always had it on his finger. Sure enough, when the authorities took a closer look at the body, there was a ring on the finger fitting the exact description of the ring the friend had described. The body belonged to Reverend James Smith. All of the evidence of the murder of the Reverend pointed toward Ernest Lyons, and on November 6, 1908, he was arrested and charged with murder. Now, remember that things in the court systems moved really fast back then, and Ernest's trial began in mid-January, just two months after he was arrested. Ernest continued to maintain his innocence, and he insisted he had nothing to do with the Reverend's death. His defense claimed that nobody could even prove that the body found in the river was that of James Smith. The prosecution had a lot of circumstantial evidence, though, and it all pointed right at Ernest, including the fact that Ernest had finally admitted that he had lied about seeing James Smith around town three different times right after he disappeared. After both sides had presented their case, the jury met to decide the fate of Ernest Lyons.
The prosecution was asking for a conviction of first-degree murder, which meant Ernest would be put to death. But when the jury came back with a verdict, they had found Ernest guilty of the murder, except only in the second degree. They believed that the two men had gotten into a fight and that the reverend was probably unintentionally killed during the fight. Ernest was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Ernest's attorney honestly believed that his client was innocent, though, and he immediately asked for a new trial. But the judge denied the motion. So, the attorney tried again. This time, the judge told the attorney that he would grant him a new trial on one condition. He wanted the attorney to go down to the jail, tell his client that the motion for a new trial had been denied, and then asked Ernest to please tell the truth of what happened now that nothing else could be done. The attorney believed that Ernest was innocent, so he agreed to the judge's terms and marched himself down to the jail to talk to his client. Except things didn't go quite as planned. Upon hearing what his attorney had to say, Ernest Lyons confessed to the murder of James Smith. He said the prosecution had mostly gotten things correct, but some of the members of the congregation who had testified against Ernest during the trial had been in on the whole thing. They had even helped Ernest dump the reverend's body in the river. The attorney was blindsided by the confession. He'd never expected it. But the attorney knew he had to do the right thing, so he went back to the judge and told him everything that he had learned. The very next day, the men who Ernest had accused of helping him with the murder were arrested too. Ernest was brought down from the jail to testify against them, but when the judge told him to raise his right hand and swear that, quote, if I have told a lie, may God strike me dead, Ernest dropped his hand and refused to say anything else. Without anyone to testify against them, the alleged accomplices were released. And eventually, Ernest would admit that he had only said the things he said about them in order to try to get revenge for them testifying against him. Now, you might think that the story is over at this point, but we're not quite there yet. We still need the twist. Ernest and the Reverend had a mutual friend named George Bunting. Despite the trial and despite Ernest's confession, George was convinced that Ernest was innocent. He didn't even think the body belonged to James Smith. You see, about the time the Reverend went missing, a boat was seen coming up the river with two men on board. One of them was a homeless black man, and the other wasn't known by anyone. Eventually, the boat the men were seen in was found along the side of the river, but only one set of tracks led away from the boat. George believed that the body belonged to the homeless man and not James Smith. George refused to let the matter go, and he continued to investigate the situation, pursuing any leads that came his way for a very long time. Pretty soon, someone sent him a letter in the mail. They said that there was a preacher in Wilson, North Carolina, who fit the description of James Smith, except he went by a different name. George decided that there was enough credibility to the claim for him to travel to Wilson himself to see if the preacher was really his old friend. 
By this time, Ernest had already been in jail for nearly three years. Now might be a good time to read you the headline of this additional history story from the Lawton Daily News. It says, Murdered Man Alive, Alleged Slayer in Pen. Yes, friends, Reverend James Smith was alive and going by a different name. Back in 1908, he didn't think people would blame his disappearance on death, but rather the fact that he had stolen the $45 that the church had given for him and Ernest to attend that conference. Yes, he had taken the money and run. Eventually, he heard about Ernest's trial, and he knew that the people thought he was dead, but he figured it would be better to stay away and let Ernest go to prison rather than go back and go to jail himself for theft. Ernest was eventually freed from prison, but I can't imagine that his life ever really went back to normal. For today's advertisement, I found an ad in the Argus Leader out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This ad is for the famous Kellogg's Cornflakes, the original cornflake. At that time in history, the patent for cornflakes had been in existence for about 15 years, but they were growing increasingly popular. The ad says, I love you, Jam, but oh, you Kellogg's. The healthy appetites of the boys and girls are always charmed by this greatest of all breakfast foods. The ad is accompanied by a drawing of a box of cornflakes and a rather odd-looking child with a bad haircut. Friends, I know it's been two months since I released an episode, and in all fairness, I did warn you that it might be a while. Unfortunately, it was longer than I intended. Hopefully it won't be quite as long before I release the next episode. I've got a great one in mind for you. Talk to you later. <laughs>